Routledge discusses the centrality of worship for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Routledge, referring to Durness, explains that cult worship, characterized by a formal system of worship, was the primary means by which the Israelites responded to God's revelation. The regular rituals and ceremonies were crucial as they provided a setting where the temporal and the infinite could meet. However, Routledge also emphasizes that the Old Testament writers recognized that God was not confined to earthly places of worship. He accentuates multiple biblical passages that describe God as dwelling in heaven, perceived as being above the earth. Passages from Genesis 11.05 and 18.21 depict God coming down from heaven to see what is happening on earth. Other scriptures such as 1 Kings 8.27 and Isaiah 40.22 suggest that even the highest heavens cannot contain God. In other words, God transcends spatial limitations. Nonetheless, Rotledge affirms that God also chooses to dwell among His people, making His presence known under certain conditions, particularly those prescribed by the cult. This means that the Israelites were allowed to approach and meet God, under the stipulated terms. He adds that encounters with God could occur anywhere, not necessarily in designated places of worship. However, locations associated with a special revelation from God were often revered and considered holy, holding particular significance within Israel's worship. These places, marked by divine encounters, become sites of religious importance. Genesis 12, 6, 7, 13, 14, 18, 35, 6, 7. Moreover, in the patriarchal era, altars were significant places of worship, with some notable ones situated at Bethel, Shechem, Mamre, Beersheba, and Moriah. Despite certain suggestions that these sites might have pre-existed as Canaanite worship locations, patriarchs are believed to have worshipped the gods previously associated with these shrines. Scripture references to sacred trees have also been interpreted as indications of Canaanite religious practices. However, it is important to note that patriarchs would worship individually at these altars, exclusively erecting them instead of participating in any Canaanite spiritual activities. There was no priesthood officiating at these shrines, further suggesting that the patriarchs maintained a separation from Canaanite cultic practices and their gods. This supports the notion that even if these shrines were linked to the Canaanite culture, the patriarchs did not engage in Canaanite religious practices or deity worship. Furthermore, the concept of the tabernacle in the Bible represents God's desire to establish His presence among His people, closely associated with the Exodus and the Sinaitic Covenant. This presence was initially personified at Mount Sinai, but God's reach was not confined to one area. The tabernacle thus enabled people to continue experiencing God's presence, even after departing from Sinai. Before the construction of the tabernacle, there was a tent known as the Tent of Meeting, where Moses would consult with God, but this wasn't associated permanently with divine presence. The tabernacle, designed at the center of the Israelite camp, was significantly different and represented God's ongoing presence. Its central space, the most holy place, contained the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-covered wooden chest that held stone tablets of the law. It's believed this may have been seen as God's throne. The intricacy of the tabernacle's design served to differentiate the holy from the profane and set the state for a holy God to dwell among His people. Through rituals, people who would usually be barred from God's presence or risk punishment for approaching Him could have access to Him. This concept was a stark contrast to contemporary notions that gods were bound to specific places and had power limited to these regions. Despite this, Israel was often tempted to confine God in this way, and after settling in Canaan, 
to adopt the worship of the Canaanite gods associated with the new land. In addition, Rutledge discusses the Canaanite religious practices and the establishment of multiple sanctuaries throughout the region following settlement. These included Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, Ramah, Shechem, Shiloh, and Gibeon, each serving as a center of worship. However, in Deuteronomy 12, Moses advises worship only at one sanctuary, at a place chosen by God. Scholars interpret this as the centralization of worship at the Jerusalem temple, particularly during King Josiah's reign, though Routledge notes that Moses could have indicated a singular sanctuary concept. The directive was seen as a move to stop people from worshiping at numerous Canaanite sanctuaries, as well as limit spiritual anarchy caused by the wide scattering of tribes across Canaan. It provided a central shrine to oversee national worship. The Ark of the Covenant, likely present in the main sanctuary, had been situated at different locations during early settlement, namely Gilgal, Shechem, and Bethel. Shiloh eventually became prominent with a substantial structure referred to as a temple. The tribes there participated in an annual festival, probably the Feast of Tabernacles. Post the Philistine capture of the Ark, Gibeon emerged as the prime high place of worship with the setting up of the tabernacle. Even after David and Solomon established a permanent central sanctuary in Jerusalem, worship at these other sites continued, though they eventually became associated with idolatry. Moses asserted the necessity for a centralized worship system, a view mirrored in the Book of Judges, which highlighted the need for a centralized political authority to prevent moral anarchy. David successfully integrated these aspects, making Jerusalem the religious and political capital of the nation, thus indicating the close link between God's presence and the continuance of their relationship with Him, and the appointment of an earthly monarch. Further, the Jerusalem Temple, initiated by David and built by Solomon, was central to Israelite religion. Being associated with God's presence among His people, it was considered God's dwelling place. Besides, Zion, the hill on which the temple was built, was linked with the presence of God and was often equated to the temple itself. The temple was symbolically filled with the cloud of glory, indicating God's presence during its dedication. However, it was believed that the sin of the people could cause the glory to depart, as described by Ezekiel. The rebuilding of the temple after the exile period was seen as crucial to ensuring the blessings in relation with God's presence. Even though the temple was conceptualized as the dwelling place of God, there was a concurrent understanding that God couldn't be confined to that one place. Additionally, the Davidic dynasty was closely associated with the temple, accentuating the temple's significance. The Zion tradition, which represented the whole city of Jerusalem, depicted Zion as God's throne, thus further symbolizing the divine choice of Israel. This included David and Zion, and promised protection against enemies, demonstrated notably in the miraculous escape from Sennacherib in 701 BC. The multifaceted depictions of the temple in relation to God's presence, God's favor towards Israel, and the historical and religious narratives elevate it to a unique position in the Israelite religion. Next, the priesthood in ancient Israel took form in connection to the tabernacle, according to Old Testament OT writers. The priests may have originally been elders or household heads who conducted the first Passover sacrifices. The distinct role of the Levites arose after their allegiance to Moses following the golden calf incident. This was marked by a covenant, potentially formalizing the Levites' unique status. Another covenant of lasting priesthood was made with Aaron's grandson Phinehas, 
possibly relating to the office of high priest. These covenants signified God's promise of a lasting, faithful priesthood. Aaron and his descendants held a special position in the priesthood, being the only ones allowed to act as priests in the tabernacle. The role was hereditary, serving as high priest, first through Aaron's son Eleazar, then through Zadok. Other Levites were designated to assist Aaron by overseeing the tabernacle. They did not receive land entitlement but were supported by the nation via tithes. Academic Wellhausen sees the distinction between Levites and priests as a later development, with early Israel's worship less complex than often portrayed. He argues that the hereditary priesthood began with David appointing Zadok. The growth of the Jerusalem temple in importance led to varying scales of esteem within Levite ranks. Those who continued ministering at local shrines were looked down upon, until Josiah's religious reforms removed high places, forcing Levites to the city in need of work. By Ezekiel's time, this amalgamation had become problematic, leading to a distinction between native Zadokites and outsider Levites. Other interpretations suggest the Levite priestly divide may not have been late and could have existed during the wilderness period. The need for priests in rural areas may have led to Levites serving in their place, despite prohibition. Such loopholes could result in unsupervised, error-prone practices. During the monarchy, Levites supported priests, although shortages often meant that Levites took on priestly duties. Levites were additionally drawn to Jerusalem as Jeroboam appointed non-Levite priests in the north and when Josiah abolished high places. Though by Ezekiel's era, these distinctions seemed to have been loosened corrupting temple worship. Ezekiel's solution limiting Levites to serve in the temple but not the sanctuary effectively returned to the instructions of Numbers 3.10. Also, Routledge explores the duties of the priest and Levite in the biblical nation of Israel, which went beyond simply serving in places of worship. They played the role of teachers, instructing the people of Jacob, Israel, in God's precepts and laws. Moreover, they performed important religious rituals, like offering incense and whole burnt offerings at the altar, as stated in Deuteronomy 33. 10. This verse is significant because it indicates the multi-dimensional roles the priests and Levites held in this society. Beyond their function as ritual specialists, they effectively served as mediators between God and the people, imparting divine instructions and leading worship. Their primary task was to maintain the purity, sanctity, and sacredness of the sanctuary and the nation, through adherence to the commandments. Festivals, sacrifices, and special feast days formed a significant part of their duties, which facilitated communal expressions of worship, thanksgiving, and repentance. Maintaining ritual cleanliness and performing acts of atonement for the community and themselves were also pivotal aspects of their responsibilities. Priests and Levites were indispensable as they instituted God's covenant, promoted knowledge of the divine, and faithfully executed practices central to Israel's religious life. These positions demanded great reverence and respect, given the sacred nature of their tasks and the traditionally esteemed positions they held within theocratic Israel. Routledge's study provides a detailed examination of the complex and intricate role of priests and Levites in the religious, spiritual, and societal life of ancient Israel. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, priests played a unique role, acting as representatives of God for their people. They were consulted by the people when God's will needed to be understood. To assist with their duties, priests were equipped with Urim and Thummim, a mysterious, unexplained pair of objects that could have been dice or stones, symbolizing yes and no. 
These were stored in the breastpiece of the high priest's attire. Moses entrusted the Levites, another group of religious leaders, with the Torah. The Old Testament maintains the priest's responsibility to provide instruction in the law. In the book of Malachi, it was stated that true instruction was in the priest's mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. This suggests that priests were considered divine messengers. People would seek knowledge and instruction from them. Further, priests acted in judicial capacities, making declarations on what was clean and unclean, dealt with issues relating to spiritual cleanliness, and pronounced divine blessings. These various responsibilities illustrate the central role priests and Levites played in maintaining religious law and order, in addition to communicating the will of God to their people. In summary, the Old Testament presents priests as representatives of God to the people, guides for understanding God's will, and custodians of religious law and cleanliness norms. Meanwhile, the Levites have been entrusted with the Torah, pointing out the importance of these religious figures in the spiritual life and moral guidance of their communities. Besides, the essential role of a priest, as explained by Rutledge, further takes us deeper into the religious practices within the realms of Christianity. A priest functioned as a representative of the people before God, with the offering of sacrifices being a critical part of the priestly role, as portrayed in various parts of the Bible, Numbers 312, 41, 816, 17. Typically, the worshiper himself would kill the sacrificial animal, unless he was ceremonially impure, in which case the priest would perform this action. 2 Chronicles 30.17, Ezekiel 44.11 Once the animal was killed, the priest was to sprinkle its blood on the altar. Leviticus 1.5.11, 2 Chronicles 29.22.24 In this religious context, offering sacrifices for sin bore significant importance, particularly in maintaining the holiness of God's people. In order to fulfill this role appropriately, the priest needed to sustain a state of consecration to God. This requirement is reinforced in various biblical verses such as Exodus 28, 41, 1 Chronicles 15, 14, 2 Chronicles 5, 11, 29, 34. The sacrificial system was therefore not just a ritual, but a significant religious practice aimed at preserving the sanctity of the worshipers and creating a link between them and God, with the priest playing a vital intermediary role. Additionally, in the Hebrew Bible, the Levites held a special role as caretakers of religious sanctuaries and were specifically entrusted with the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark was a sacred object containing the tablets of the Torah and symbolized God's presence among the Israelites. The Levites had various duties in the Jerusalem temple, which were crucial for maintaining the sanctity and functioning of the space. They served as gatekeepers, ensuring the purity of the sanctuary by guarding its entrances, 1 Chronicles 9, 19, 20, 22, 27, 15, 23, 24, 2 Chronicles 23, 6, CF, Numbers 153. Also, they played a significant role in leading worship through singing and playing musical instruments, 1 Chronicles 6, 31, 32, 15, 16, 27, 25, 131, 2 Chronicles 20, 21, 22, Nehemiah 12, 45. Their responsibilities were not just logistical but also spiritual as they helped to facilitate a connection between the people and God. Moreover, Rutledge discusses the religious significance of the spring feasts in Jewish tradition, focusing on Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Celebrated on the evening of 14 Nisan, Passover commemorates Israel's liberation from Egyptian slavery and is one of the three pilgrim feasts where people would gather at a central shrine.
It is immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which marks the beginning of the barley harvest. Routledge suggests that both festivals may have originated from earlier spring festivals related to pastoral and agricultural cycles, but were later reinterpreted in the context of the exodus from Egypt. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first sheaf of corn is presented, although it is unclear whether this is done on the weekly Sabbath or the first day of the feast itself. Both feasts serve not just as religious observances, but also as markers of agricultural and pastoral milestones. Furthermore, the Feast of Weeks is the second pilgrim feast in the Jewish tradition, as described in Leviticus 23.15.16. It is celebrated to mark the end of the grain harvest and takes place seven weeks or fifty days after the presentation of the first sheaf. In later Jewish tradition, the significance of the Feast of Weeks evolved to commemorate the anniversary of the Sinai Covenant. This feast serves dual purposes. It is both an agricultural celebration and a religious observance that links the community back to a pivotal moment in their spiritual history, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. In addition, the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, is an important Jewish festival described in Leviticus 16. Celebrated on the tenth day of the seventh month, Tishri, it serves as a day for national repentance. The high priest performs sacrifices to atone for the sins of the nation. A unique aspect of the ritual involves two goats chosen by lots. One goat is designated for the Lord and is sacrificed as a purification offering. The other goat is designated for to Azazel. The high priest lays his hands on this second goat, symbolically transferring the nation's sins onto it. This Azazel goat is then released into a desolate area often referred to as a land of cutting off, symbolizing the removal of Israel's sins. The term Azazel is ambiguous. It may refer to a desert demon, but the ritual is not a sacrifice to Azazel. Rather, it symbolizes sending sin back to its origin. The term cutting off could imply the goat's death in the desert, as some interpretations suggest it was pushed over a cliff. Regardless of the specific meanings of these terms, the core message of the ritual is the symbolic removal of sin from the community. Further, the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot, is one of the three major pilgrim feasts in the Jewish tradition. Celebrated on the 15th of Tishri, it serves as a harvest festival, marking the ingathering of fruits and rejoicing in God's provision. The festival has its roots in agriculture, but it is also deeply connected to the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. During the eight-day celebration, participants dwell in temporary shelters or sukkahs, reminiscent of the tents the Israelites lived in during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This practice serves as a tangible reminder of God's protection and provision during that period. The Feast of Tabernacles holds significant importance in Jewish culture and religious practice, to the extent that it is sometimes simply referred to as the Feast in biblical texts like Psalms 81. 3 and Ezekiel 45, 25. The rabbis have described this festival as the season of our joy, reiterating its dual role in celebrating both agricultural bounty and spiritual deliverance. Besides, Rutledge explores various theories and aspects of sacrifice in the Old Testament. He begins by dismissing the primitive idea that deities depend on offerings for sustenance, repeating that the OT never views God as needing food or being dependent on humans. Instead, Sacrifices in the OT are gifts meant to acknowledge God's glory and power. They are not bribes to win God's favor, but expressions of praise and recognition of God's past deeds and ongoing providence. Additionally, 
Routledge delves into the role of sacrifice in cleansing and atonement. In the OT, blood is a crucial element for ritual purity, used for cleansing from diseases or sins. Most OT sacrifices contain an element of atonement, which is linked to turning away divine wrath. Routledge contends that God's wrath exists alongside His grace and is a righteous judgment on sin. Reconciliation is only possible when divine justice is satisfied, which involves repentance and obedience from humans. Sacrifices, in this context, can be seen as expressions that avert God's wrath and judgment. Routledge notes that the OT does not explicitly explain how the death of an animal provides cleansing and reconciliation. However, he suggests that the sacrifice may serve as a form of reparation to God and implies an awareness of sin and the need for reconciliation. The sacrifice may also symbolically take the place of the worshiper, serving as a substitute in some sense. Overall, Routledge's analysis offers a nuanced understanding of the multifaceted role of sacrifices in the OT, underlining their significance beyond mere ritualistic practices. Additionally, in the Old Testament, sacrifices can be broadly categorized into three types, gift offerings, burnt offerings, and a third unspecified category. Gift offerings serve as a tribute to acknowledge that everything comes from God. They include offerings of first fruits and regulations about the firstborn. Also, these offerings are made in thanksgiving for blessings received, such as during harvests. The term often used for such offerings is minya, which can refer to grain offerings or be used more generally. Burnt offerings, or ola, are another significant type of sacrifice. These offerings are burned whole on the altar and usually consist of perfect male animals like bulls, goats, sheep, or pigeons. Often they are accompanied by grain offerings. The act of burning is symbolic. The rising smoke may signify the transfer of the sacrifice from the physical to the spiritual realm. These offerings could also represent an irrevocable gift to God, underscoring their acceptability and pleasing nature to Him. Burnt offerings were the most common sacrifices and were offered twice daily in the sanctuary. The process involved the worshiper bringing an unblemished male animal to the sanctuary, laying hands on it to signify it was offered on their behalf, and then killing and preparing it. Priests would then sprinkle its blood around the altar and burn the pieces on it. This ritual was not just an offering but also a form of worship and a means of establishing a relationship with God. Moreover, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term selamim refers to fellowship or communion offerings, which are detailed in Leviticus 3. Unlike burnt offerings, where the entire animal is consumed by fire, selamim offerings are shared among God, the priest, and the worshiper. God's portion is burned on the altar. The priest receives specific parts like the breast and right leg, and the remaining meat is consumed by the worshiper and their family. The animals eligible for these offerings are similar to those for burnt offerings except birds are not included as they are too small for a fellowship meal. Leviticus 7.12.16 outlines three types of selamim offerings, thank offerings, votive offerings, and free will offerings. Thank offerings are expressions of gratitude, votive offerings are made to fulfill vows, and free will offerings are given voluntarily. These offerings are also mentioned in other books like Chronicles, Psalms, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Ezra, and Kings. Furthermore, selamim offerings have a covenantal aspect. They are associated with the renewal of covenant vows and thanksgiving to God. For example, they are mentioned in the context of covenant ceremonies in Exodus 24, 5, Deuteronomy 27, 7, and other passages. Overall, 
Selimum offerings serve multiple purposes, including communal fellowship, expression of gratitude, fulfillment of vows, and the renewal of covenantal relationships with God. In addition, in Rutledge's discussion on sacrifices for sin, the concept of atonement is central. Atonement can signify either cleansing and purification or the payment of a ransom. The burnt offering is a significant form of atonement in the biblical context cited in various scriptures like Leviticus 1, 4, and Numbers 15, 26 It serves to turn away God's wrath and reconcile the human-divine relationship disrupted by sin. Further, two other offerings aim to mend this separation, the purification offering, hatat, commonly known as the sin offering, and the reparation or guilt offering, asam. These offerings serve as ritualistic means to overcome the spiritual and moral gap between humanity and God, caused by human sinfulness. They are not just symbolic, but are deeply rooted in the theological understanding of sin and divine justice. Besides, in Rotledge's discussion of the purification offering in the Hebrew Bible, he outlines its purpose as twofold to atone for sin and to purify the sanctuary. This offering was generally for inadvertent sins or ceremonial uncleanliness, not for willful defiance. The purification offering was unique in that the blood of the sacrificed animal was used to cleanse the sanctuary. Depending on the gravity and the source of the sin, whether from an individual, a leader, or the community, the rituals varied. For instance, the blood could be smeared on the horns of the altar or taken into the sanctuary and sprinkled in front of the curtain separating the ark. Routledge notes that the type of animal sacrificed also indicated the degree of pollution. Bulls were used for priests in the community, male goats for leaders, and female goats or lambs for individual members. Those who couldn't afford these could offer birds or grain. Additionally, the purification offering was mainly for unintentional sins, whereas the Day of Atonement covered deliberate sins. On this day, the blood was taken into the most holy place, signifying a deeper level of purification. The purification offering and the Day of Atonement rituals emphasize the concept that sin not only defiles individuals, but also pollutes God's sanctuary. This necessitated purification to ensure that God's holy presence could continue to dwell among the people. While the Day of Atonement provided a provision for corporate forgiveness, including deliberate defiance, there was no such provision for deliberate individual sins. The rituals thus served as a complex system to manage different degrees of spiritual pollution and to maintain the sanctity of the divine human relationship. Next, the reparation offering in the Old Testament was a specific type of sacrifice aimed at atoning for certain offenses. Unlike the fellowship offering, which allowed for a variety of animals, the reparation offering was more restrictive, permitting only a ram or a year-old male lamb. The offering was not entirely burned on the altar. The remaining parts were consumed by the priests. Accompanying this offering was a monetary fine, as outlined in Leviticus 5, 14, 16 and Numbers 5, 5, 8. The reparation offering served a dual purpose. It was both a penalty and a means of making restitution. It was intended to reconcile the individual not just with God, but also with any other parties who had been wronged by the individual's actions. Also, this offering encapsulated the idea that sins committed against others are offenses against God, requiring both divine and interpersonal reconciliation. Moreover, Rutledge dives into the significance of sacrifice in religious rituals, particularly focusing on the purification and burnt offerings as described in the Old Testament. 
Routledge identifies two key elements in these sacrifices, the laying of hands on the animal and the shedding of blood. The act of laying hands on the animal serves multiple purposes. It could signify an act of surrender, where the worshiper offers their life to God. Alternatively, it could be seen as a ransom, where the animal dies in place of the worshiper, averting God's wrath. Furthermore, this act may symbolize the transference of sin, especially when accompanied by confession, as seen in the Day of Atonement rituals. The second common factor, the shedding of blood, is crucial for the concept of atonement. Routledge debates that the shedding of blood serves as a form of substitutionary atonement. The blood signifies death, and the death of the animal on behalf of the sinner or the community allows for cleansing, forgiveness, and the continued presence of God among his people. Despite the ritualistic nature of these sacrifices, Routledge accentuates that they have always had a significant interior aspect, indicating a deeper spiritual meaning and not just a mechanistic process. In addition, in Routledge's exploration of hesed and forgiveness within the context of the Old Testament, he disputes that the sacrificial system was only a partial solution for sin and maintaining a relationship with God. The system primarily covered unintentional sins, and there was no provision for individual deliberate sins. Offenders who committed sins against God's nature and character would be cut off from the community, a term that Routledge interprets as being put outside the covenant's protection. Routledge introduces the concept of hesed, God's loving and faithful commitment to His covenant people, as a means for those who have stepped outside the boundaries of the covenant to find forgiveness. This is particularly evident in the Psalms, where appeals to God's hesed are made when the sacrificial system is insufficient. Psalm 51 serves as a prime example, where the psalmist, who has committed a deliberate sin, appeals directly to God's heased for mercy and forgiveness. Further, Routledge addresses the question of whether sacrifices are necessary if Hesed can provide forgiveness. He argues that the negative view of sacrifices in the Old Testament is not a theological stance but a response to the corruption of true worship and the spiritual condition of the people. Sacrifices still have a place in the vision of God's coming kingdom and are acceptable after spiritual renewal. Therefore, the appeal to God's he said is not a replacement for sacrifices, but an additional avenue for those who find themselves outside the covenant's provisions. Besides, Routledge explores the complex relationship between prayer and sacrifice in the context of the Old Testament. He critiques the idea that prayer could replace sacrifices, affirming that both have distinct roles and are not mutually exclusive. According to Routledge, Sacrifices were not merely ritualistic, but were deeply spiritual acts that required a right interior attitude. They were part of a covenantal relationship with God, who, while committed to accepting properly offered sacrifices, could not be forced into forgiveness. Additionally, Routledge digs into the concept of Hesed, or God's covenant love and faithfulness. He contends that direct appeals to God's Hesed are necessary when one is outside the covenant, where traditional sacrifices don't apply. This is evident in Psalm 51, which shows a level of soul-searching and contrition beyond what was required within the sacrificial system. He challenges the Christian notion that the Old Testament's approach to sacrifice was merely a precursor to the New Testament's focus on prayer and forgiveness. Instead, he debates that the OT sacrificial system had ongoing theological significance and was not intended to be replaced until its fulfillment in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Routledge concludes that the principles underlying the OT sacrificial system, such as the seriousness of sin, the communal impact of individual sin, and the need for regular forgiveness, 
remain relevant for the Christian church today. Therefore, he suggests that OT texts on sacrifice still offer valuable theological insights for understanding our relationship with God through Christ. Next, in Rutledge's discussion on the role of prayer in Old Testament worship, he asserts that prayer was a crucial aspect alongside sacrifices. Rooted in the covenant between God and Israel, prayer was an act of communication based on the belief that God listens and responds. However, unanswered prayers also led to frustration and concern. Prayer could be a private act or part of public worship, but its efficacy was compromised if the relationship with God was strained due to unconfessed sins or if it became a meaningless ritual. Prayer in the Old Testament often included elements of adoration, praise, confession, and pleas for forgiveness. Various types of psalms served as hymns of praise, while others were laments that included confessions of sin. Also, prayers included intercession, as seen in the cases of Abraham, Moses, and Samuel, among others. Moreover, Routledge discusses the purpose of prayer, highlighting the tension between the idea that prayer can change God's mind and the belief in God's sovereignty. While some dispute that the purpose of prayer is to influence God's will, this raises questions about God's sovereignty and the efficacy of prayer. Routledge concludes that while God is sovereign, He also responds to the prayers of His people, leaving the tension between God's will and human agency in prayer unresolved. Last but not least, in Routledge's discussion on the role of music and singing in ancient Israel, he indicates their significance in both life and worship. Music was a way to celebrate God's actions, as seen when Moses and Miriam led the Israelites in song after crossing the Red Sea. Instruments like tambourines and practices like dancing were integral to these celebrations. Music was not just for joyous occasions, it also accompanied prophecy and was a part of religious festivals and temple processions. However, music could also be misused, as in the case of the worship of the golden calf, which was condemned by prophets like Amos. The Psalms, often accompanied by musical instruments, were a crucial part of Israelite worship. These were sometimes categorized by musical directions or tune titles, although the exact meanings of terms like Alamoth and Sheminith are not clear. The term Sela, frequently found in the Psalms, is also thought to be a musical instruction. Levites had a special role in overseeing music and singing in religious contexts. Some Levites like Asaph, Heman, and Ethan are even associated with specific Psalms. The sons of Korah, another Levitical family, were also musicians and singers responsible for a number of Psalms. Music in this context served various purposes. It was a form of praise, a medium for lament, and possibly a teaching tool that reminded people of God's deeds and encouraged faithfulness. Overall, Routledge maintains the multifaceted role of music in the spiritual and social life of ancient Israel. In conclusion, Routledge explores the centrality of cult worship and the role of the sanctuary, sacrifice, priesthood, feasts, and prayer in the Old Testament of Israel. Cult worship, including rituals and ceremonies, were an essential way for Israelites to interact with God. Furthermore, despite God being perceived as dwelling in heaven, He chose to make His presence known among His people through earthly sanctuaries. These sites, often associated with divine revelation, held particular significance in Israel's religious practices. In addition, in pre-monarchy times, patriarchs established altars at distinguished places, such as Bethel and Shechem, for individual worship, avoiding Canaanite spiritual practices. The Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence, resided in the tabernacle at the heart of the Israelite camp. 
The tabernacle's design and rituals differentiated the sacred from the profane, facilitating access to God's presence. Further, following settlement in Canaan, multiple sanctuaries became established throughout the region. However, the directive from Moses in Deuteronomy 12 suggested worship should be at a location chosen by God, seen as a move centralizing worship at the Jerusalem Temple under King Josiah. Centralization allowed for oversight of national worship and limited spiritual anarchy. Once established, the Jerusalem Temple, closely linked with the Davidic dynasty, was perceived as synonymous with God's presence, pointing out its significance in the Israelite religion. Besides, the priesthood in Israel originally comprised heads of families who officiated at Passover sacrifices. The roles of priests in ancient Israel extended beyond worship to teaching God's laws, performing religious rituals, maintaining the sanctuary's sanctity, and mediating between God and the people. Additionally, priests provided judicial and spiritual guidance to their communities. Also, they held a unique role in presenting sacrificial offerings to God, thereby preserving the sanctity of worshipers and fostering connectivity with God. Moreover, among the major Jewish feasts, Passover commemorates Israel's liberation from Egypt. The Feast of Weeks marks the end of the grain harvest and serves dual purposes of both agricultural celebration and religious observance. The Day of Atonement served as a day for national repentance. Furthermore, the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of agricultural bounty and spiritual deliverance. In addition, Rutledge interprets the act of sacrifice in many ways, all of which revolve around the acknowledgement of God's glory and power, the need to atone for sins, and to make reparations. Further, the efficacy of prayer in the Old Testament is discussed, with Rutledge noting its rootedness in the covenant between God and Israel. Besides, he explores the role of music and song in Israelite life and worship, noting their function in celebrations, prophecy, religious ceremonies, and as teaching tools. Music became a significant way to express praise and faithfulness to God. Overall, Rutledge's study explores the multifaceted elements of worship practices in ancient Israel.